Hey everybody, this is Nate Dancer with Purity for Life. As previously mentioned, we're taking a quick break from our latest series, A Firm Foundation, but I'm really excited about our show today because we're going to do a book review. I'll be joined by Brooks Popwell and Reagan Bowman, two of the biblical counselors here at Pure Life Ministries, and we're going to talk about the book, A Chance to Die, The Life and Legacy of Amy Carmichael, which was written by Elizabeth Elliot. If you're not in the habit of reading biographies, I really hope that this episode will inspire you to start because aside from the Bible, I think that Christian biographies can be some of the most helpful reading that you'll ever do. So, A Chance to Die, The Life and Legacy of Amy Carmichael, that's what's coming up. Here we go. All right, Brooks and Reagan, thank you guys so much for coming into the studio to talk with us about this book, uh, Chance to Die, The Life and Legacy of Amy Carmichael by Elizabeth Elliot. And um, for anybody who is just joining uh, Purity for Life, we are right in the middle of a series called A Firm Foundation, and that series is intended to help our listeners develop a quality devotional life, meaning daily time in the Word and in prayer, but this series is specifically focusing on Bible study. And um, at a couple of different points throughout this series, we're going to break and do a book review on some various uh, Christian biographies. And I think that this is going to be helpful for probably a number of reasons, but I know that Pastor Steve Gallagher here at Pure Life has told us many times how influential Christian biographies have been and how helpful they've been. Because when you read a Christian biography, you're getting a chance to see God's work in a person's life, and you can see that they went through trials. You can see how they went through difficulties. You can see how they grew. You can see some of the mistakes that they may have made. And so it can just be very helpful, especially just for you in your own life. You know, I think about Hebrews chapter 11, which we often call the Hall of Faith, and it's basic, you know, that chapter is really about realizing that there are people who have gone before us and their lives are a witness to us. You know, their lives are a testimony that God is faithful and he's true and he's able to perform those things which he has promised. And so when we read Christian biographies, that's what we're doing. We're, we're getting a bird's eye view into the ways of God, the faithfulness of God, and also being able to um, see specifically what he did in people's lives. So we're going to do that. I think it could be really helpful. Before we even talk about the book, um, for you guys personally, what has been the value of, of reading biographies? For me, I think it is helpful to see what other people in other places have had to go through for the sake of Christ. Like, you know, at Pure Life, we have a very specific calling, Mm -hmm. you know, to men in sexual sin. And so that looks like many different things for us. But then, you know, looking at someone like Amy Carmichael and other people like her, 
you know, they had a different context where they were trying to minister the gospel to a group of people, and that means a bunch of different things as well. And so it's almost like kind of takes you out of your where you are, and you can kind of get a better look at what other people have gone through as well. And it kind of gives you some things to compare and, and things to um, to see how you relate, you know, relate with them in a way. So I think that's always cool for me. What about you, Brooks? Well, I haven't read a lot of biographies, but this, oh, really? mo- yeah, but okay. this motivated me to consider doing that because entering into it, like, you know, I knew it would be convicting. I mean, a life like this lived to such a high level, but she showed me the attractiveness of this kind of life. And and I think that that's maybe what I can see happening if I get into reading more of these biographies is like, okay, yes, it's a call to a higher way of living. But yeah, it was just, I, I started the book and it was just like, wow, I was just kind of in shock. But like the more I got used to the atmosphere of like her life and the way she was choosing to live, it was very compelling. Mm-hmm. And, and also attainable in the sense that she was a human being just like us and you saw our struggles. But I think th- for me, that was what made it helpful was zooming out and seeing, okay, she had hard times. She had times where the Lord helped her through and, and it's like, wow, okay, mm-hmm. he can do that for me. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So have you read any other biographies, Brooks? Some. It's just been a while. Okay. It's been a while. Um, which ones have been a blessing to you besides this one? I think it would just be nice for other people to hear some of the stories. Yeah. I was very blessed by Jackie Pollinger's biography, um, Chasing the Dragon. Okay. Yep. And it, it was funny. One of the things I picked up from this is it's like they could have been related. Like the spirit in each of these women was very similar. Yeah. Just that 100% devotion and the fact that their lives were f- very rich as a result of that. Mm. So that, you know, it's in a way they kind of hit me both ways. There's an attractiveness to that way of life, even though I can't relate fully to it, you know? Right. So. Okay. What about you, Reagan? I'm on the same place as in the same place as Brooks. I haven't read a lot, but. Wow. Yeah. So I, this was kind of an introduction was. for you a little it bit. Kind of, oh, yeah, that's it great. Was. But I have read like. You know, Frank Houghton made a book that's about Amy Carmichael, too, and it actually focuses more on her time spent bedridden. Like, half of the book is devoted to it. Really? So it's pretty crazy how, like, you have two books and the different looks at her life. And one, like, this was very comprehensive, so it was, like, everything that happened, and it was really divided up well. Mm -hmm. Um, But Frank Houghton spends, like, literally half of the book talking about her in bed writing letters and, like, all that that involved. So that's wow. pretty cool. And then the other book I read is The Heavenly Man, which is really, really good as well. Okay. Um, Brother I, Yoon. Yeah, Brother Yoon. Not very similar to this, like just crazy life, you know, very laid down, like hearing the voice of the Lord all the time and responding to the voice of the Lord. And yeah, it was yeah, mm-hmm. pretty great. Since you mentioned the Houghton biography, I would be curious what your – and did you read it as well, Nate? The, no. Okay. This is one of the ones I think they have us read in the internship as well, mm-hmm. so – or. Yeah, they used to. Um, I like this one, I think, better. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just different. I think Houghton was writing more from the time when she was alive. He was, I think, a CIM missionary, China Inland Mission. Oh, so like he knew her. Maybe? Yeah. In fact, it mentions him in this book uh, towards the end, and maybe the part that you didn't read, but it actually mentions him, and I think he was there 
like he was kind of he went to Donover and was part of it. I forget exactly what his role was, but it mm. does mention him in this book. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's. I'm sure it's been a while since I've read it. I'm, it's very good. Uh, this one I appreciated more. I mean, there's just a lot of differences, but Elizabeth Elliot, obviously a woman's perspective, it mm. focuses more on tracing her spiritual development as opposed to the other book. I don't know. It just to me, yeah, it's been so long, but I think it was more just a lot of different details. This one, I felt like I really got to know her going yeah. through the book yeah, and just all her inner workings. And to me, that was fascinating. Mm, okay. Yeah. For those who are interested in other biographies as we go through, I'll just list some that I've read that have been a real blessing to me. Um, Eric Metaxas wrote a couple of books, one on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and then another on the life of Martin Luther. So those are both very, very good reads. The uh, Bonhoeffer book, you're going to have to struggle through the first couple of chapters. It's so in-depth with a lot of different names and places and stuff, and you just sort of have to tune those out and just kind of like, it's like, I don't know who these people are, and I'm never going to remember all this. I've I've really enjoyed some different missionary biographies. There's a biography called Bruchko about a man named, uh, I think his name is Bruce Larson, and he got saved out of a nominal Lutheran background and was so burdened by missions that he moved down to South America and evangelized uh, basically a violent tribe called the Matalones. That's a fascinating book. A book called Peace Child by Don Richardson. He, he was a missionary in the 1950s maybe and moved to Papua New Guinea and evangelized a headhunting cannibal tribe there. That book is absolutely f- phenomenal. Wow. Uh, it's violent and it's can be gruesome at some points, so it's hard to read, but it's very, very good. But anyway, those are just a few that I've read. And I'll just put in a plug for audiobooks too. If you're not a huge reader, then Audible has a great deal. It's $15 a month and then you get one credit, one book credit per month. And I listen to audiobooks all the time. So it's a great way. If you're an auditory uh, learner and you can wash dishes and cook and eat and listen and drive or whatever, it's a great it's a great way to consume some biographies. Okay, so anyway, so let's get into the let's get into the book. Okay, so let's talk about her growing up years. What did you guys learn about her personality from the early pages of the book? Well, I think what stands out to me looking back at that period was the impact that godly parents can have on a child. And, you know, it's the Victorian era and the way people did stuff was definitely different. But (laughs) I mean, how can you argue with the results in a sense that this was a godly home This and it was a strict home and they bring that out, but it was a loving home. And so, you know, it was filled with loving things and they knew their parents loved them, but they weren't messing around and they weren't tolerating even anything approaching, you know, yeah, it was just a lot stricter than the way we would think a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. But yet, even fast forwarding to later in her life, when her mother came to see her ministry, you can just tell the love that was there, the fact that, you know, her mother's greatest desire was to see her do what she ended up doing, give her life to Jesus. And it's just a beautiful thing. And, and she became a very balanced person through that stringent upbringing. 
and uh, very able to love. You know, the love for her mother was very close. They make a point of that in the book that wasn't so much connected with her father. Maybe that was typical of the times, but the relationship with her mother, very affectionate. And you see how she related to other figures throughout her life. And yeah, I'm sure she learned a lot of that love in her childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was actually just looking at this uh, this book and it says, there's a quote from this book, I'm going to read it. The preoccupations of 17-year-old girls, their looks, their clothes, their social life do not change very much from generation to generation. But in every generation, there seem to be a few who make other choices. Amy was one of the few. And I think that that sets her apart already from, you know, other girls her age, other kids her age. Like the things that she put value on was not the same as just general culture. And that definitely was attributed to how she grew up. You know, the the strict discipline, the godly home. Um, So from that tells me that from an early age, she was already focusing on the things of the Lord, which obviously propelled her into that life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just made a couple of notes here as I read through to get a sense of her personality. She was extremely passionate about everything that she did, whether that was her relationships or her family or um, her feelings. I mean, she was obviously a very deep, a woman with very deep feelings. She was very sensitive. There was a story about her, um, (laughs) it was a hilarious story. She had heard about Jesus and him dying on the cross, and she was so touched by that, the idea that a man had suffered so badly, she ran out into the garden, and then her cousin had actually crucified a frog and nailed it to a tree, and she was like, she was a pretty young girl, but she was horrified about this, and she tried to get it down, but she couldn't reach that high. And then she runs back into the house, and she has this thought, but now all frogs will go to heaven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, I mean, she was obviously a very passionate, very deep feeling. She was daring. Mm. Um, she broke the mold even as, a, even as a young girl. She was no nonsense. She uh, stuck to her convictions. You know, she was, what would the word be? She was intense, you know? Yeah. And you can just see how the Lord worked with that. Because when God spoke something to her, it went into the depths of her being. There was nothing superficial about her. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of leads, I think, to she had a, a few pivotal moments, it seems like, that, the, that Elizabeth Elliot picks out. Uh, the first one, she was helping a woman, an old woman, who was struggling with a, some kind of bundle, she says, struggling with it, and so her and her brothers brothers were helping her back to her house. And as she was passing through a, a town square, she said a voice spoke to her and said, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be declared by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is, if any man's work abide. And she felt very strongly that her life was not going to amount to anything in the eternal realm. And so she put her house in order, basically. I think she was about 15, maybe. 
I don't remember. Oh, no, she was 17. Yeah, yeah. So she put her house in order, and she determined that her life was going to be given to the Lord's work. And she began to do some pretty amazing things at 17. She started teaching a group of boys in a night school, which would give her the chance to teach them from the Bible. She started a program called The Morning Watch, and that encouraged boys and girls to spend regular time in Bible reading and prayer. And she would give them cards that would allow them to confess whether or not they had actually done what they were being taught to do or not. Um, she started a weekly prayer meeting for, for uh, schoolgirls. She worked at the YWCA. She had a class at the Presbyterian Church for girls who worked at the mill. Um, so, I mean, at 17, when she made a decision, that decision was made. And she turned, it seems like, almost her whole life on a dime to begin serving the Lord and serving the, those who had less than she did. Pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of the faith chapter, Hebrews 11, just about what happened to these people who were full of faith, you know, like Abraham, when he was called, he went out. And no, when he was called, like he built a boat <laughs> and it was like, they didn't question. It wasn't like, you know, well, maybe, maybe not. They did it. And it's like, this is the same type of attitude she had. She heard and she did. Mm-hmm. I think that definitely stood out to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah. So then there was another pivotal moment where, you know, even as she was doing all of these works, these good works and really striving to please the Lord, she had a sense that it wasn't enough or that somehow all that she was doing needed um well what she said was that basically like i'm still not living a holy life i'm doing all these things but there needs to be something more and something deeper and so that led into her being involved or she she came in contact with a group called the Keswick movement which was in England, there were, man, there were a lot of people out of the Keswick movement that went and changed the world. I think Hudson Taylor was involved with them at some level. The Woodall, Hannah Woodall Smith, um, there are other people too. I think D.L. Moody had some contact with Keswick. So yeah, it was pretty amazing. But anyway, in one of these meetings, she had been agonizing and praying like, how can I live a holy life? And In one of those meetings, the minister quoted from Jude and said, O Lord, we know that thou art able to keep us from falling. And she said those words went basically just went into her so deeply, and she knew that God can take my whole life and use it for his purposes, and he can keep me. Like all of my misgivings about can I live a holy life, can I be of use for him, can I be of real service was answered in that moment, and the answer was yes. Not because of herself, not because of her own determination or will or power, but because the Lord was able to keep her from from falling. And so that really was another huge moment for her where she started to ask herself, what has God planned for my life? Yeah, that is one of the nice things about reading a biography is you're looking back and seeing the Lord's faithfulness in circumstances and even in someone's inner life, bringing them to those moments that are crossroads or where he answers 
a very important question in their life. And then you see how that plays out. I mean, because I had forgotten about that episode there in that meeting, but um, you definitely see that certitude in her life going forward. I mean, she was already a strong person right. in a certain way, but, you know, yeah, she was going to go through a lot. She needed that reassurance. And it's, it's neat to see even just in one life. I mean, how can you even remember all the times the Lord meets someone and does that? And you see a lot of those in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it it also speaks to the necessity of having a spiritual hunger because there was something in her that so drove her. Like I look at my own life and it's easy to be like, see me floundering between different things at different times where it's like, well, maybe that was the Lord or maybe it wasn't. But like she heard, she had these very decisive moments, especially even early on, that she just chose to have faith and believe and go. And it's amazing to us because we can look at our own lives and see how much we that double-mindedness, we flounder back and forth, but she hears the Lord and then she just goes and like abandons all. And you see this repeatedly throughout her life, like even at the expense of other people saying things and even godly people saying things to her and saying, hey, you need to be careful. You need to consider this. But she just she just plows ahead and she's like, I'm going to do this thing because I've heard from the Lord. Yeah. And I think that's, that's amazing and inspirational for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like she went through a process because there were definitely times where it was extremely clear to her that she had heard from the Lord. I mean, even to the point like in that one that I mentioned earlier where she was passing through that square, she turned to look and see who had said those words. This was not an impression. This was, she heard an audible voice. Mm -hmm. And when she was a little bit later on when she received the call to missionary work, it was a voice. She heard a voice in the room with her saying, go. But then there were other times where it wasn't quite as obvious, you know? Like, you know, as you look from that moment where she said, go, or where the Lord said, go, to where she actually arrived at her destination, I think it was probably like four or five years. Mm-hmm. It seemed like that. Mm-hmm. Because first she went to, she thought she was supposed to go to Japan. And she went to Japan, and she experienced some hardship and difficulties. And then she went to Sri Lanka, I think. And then she was called back to England for a while. And it was it was a number of years before she actually arrived in India mm-hmm. where she knew, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, again, it's I guess it's maybe this is a sign of a good biography. You can pick any facet like this and see how it developed in her life. By the end of the book, she is writing a memo of sorts to her fellow workers when she's, you know, very elderly and describing to them how to find the Lord's will. By that point, it's very clear to her. She has some very clear instructions, but you can tell that was just kind of hammered out over time. And even her, just her spiritual, you know, life in general, it's hard to put it in a certain niche. Like she grew up, was it Presbyterian? Yeah. But I mean, yeah, she was hearing voices, you know, hearing the Lord. Like so right. and then she believed in miracles, but maybe not to a degree that some people would. So it's neat seeing how she wrestled through all these things. Um, even like back to the guidance thing, like by the end it was very balanced. Like she would she believed in looking at circumstances, but also you had to have scripture. And then not even just those. It was also she held a place for having an inner leading from the Lord. And she felt like at the end of her life, you needed all three. If you didn't have all three, it was shaky. 
So, you know, I don't know that she made it a rule. And in the early part of her life, it seems like she was just open to the Lord, you know. But that's interesting to see how by the end, to her, it became more clear. Mm-hmm. What should this look like in general? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciated too. All throughout, I think. Um, I mean, Elizabeth Elliot in writing was very respectful of her, and she definitely didn't come out and say, "Here were all of Amy's flaws." But if you read carefully, she wasn't obscuring her flaws either. Yeah, yeah, and her weaknesses. Um, and so I, I appreciated that too. The Amy that left Ireland in the late 1800s was not the same woman in the 1950s. Like even her with her brilliant, I mean, she, she seems like she was a brilliant woman. She had incredible powers of, of determination and will. She was a good judge of character. You know, even with all of that, she still had to go through a process. And she didn't have her – she wasn't without her failings and her her faults. Yeah, it's encouraging, isn't it? Even in a life of this caliber, you see that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that you see throughout the book different instances where it was like the Lord was doing a work on her personality and even subduing that strength – you know, that very direct personality that she had by the end of the book, there's some comments where you're like, some people were going in there and that were criticizing her. And then they come into the Donover fellowship and they're like, that it's not true, mm. <laughs> you know, cause people were saying things, but she was just this gentle, kind, you know, loving woman of God who had just over the years, you know, these things had fallen off that she maybe had earlier on this strength that could even cut people and maybe hurt people. I mean, we don't know exactly, but there's some things throughout the the book that kind of allude to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just, at the end of the book, here she is, you know, this woman of God who's been shaped and molded by all these difficulties and trials and sufferings over all the years. Yeah. Yeah, it was neat to see how people responded to her. I mean, because she faced a lot of flack, and one of the big things she suffered through was her reputation being besmirched because— you know, she didn't do things the orthodox way. There was one funny poem in there about essentially, you better do it the way people expect you to do it or you are going to go through the fire. But she didn't, and she faced that ridicule. Uh, I think there was this psychologist once that even visited just because they thought she'd be a case study in like a messed up old woman, basically, who was like a dictator. And mm-hmm. she came and met with her, and after five minutes, she's like, Yeah, I've picked the wrong person. This lady is very balanced, you know, and just a mm. wonderful human being. So, mm. and, and even the workers, the ones that really knew her, even though you could look at some of the things she did from a distance and think, I don't know about that. None of them, like they had a hard time even remembering any of her flaws. Mm. They felt like just because the thing that you were so impressed with was just, this woman loves me. And she, like, you could not doubt her sincerity mm-hmm. and, that, and her character by that point. I mean, I'm sure the decisions she was making we're pretty sound, so. Yeah. One thing that was really clear throughout the book was that she was determined to live a life of prayer, you know? Like this, she was not going to hammer this out just in her own strength and her own capabilities. She w- she prayed about everything. And it was, 
she was really balanced in that as well. Um, there was one story where she talked about she needed some uh, land and some money in order to set up a school for, for girls. So she prayed about that. And then as soon as she prayed about it, she, she went on the hunt. You know, like, where's the land that God will give me, basically? <laughs> One of the is like, how did this woman do all this? <laughs> I'm just like, she will accomplish a thousand times in her life what I will accomplish in mine. There's, no, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, this is totally random, but from a just a book perspective, it's fascinating also just to see the whole culture that she lived in. I mean, this is an interesting time of history. You know, she, there's even some chapters in here on that colonial period in India. And just to see how they interacted with the local people, what it was like, given the fact that Britain was reigning in India and how she navigated that, it's just fascinating to me. And just kind of, you get a lot of beautiful color in the story with that. Yeah, Elizabeth Elliot is a fantastic writer. So it's it's a very enjoyable read. It's uh, about three hundred and fifty pages total, three hundred seventy pages total. So it's a it's a hefty read. I wouldn't call it an easy read, um, but if you enjoy reading, this is a this is a great one. If if you're just getting sort of into biographies, maybe, and you wouldn't consider yourself like a strong reader, the story Bruchko that I mentioned was. Amazing and an easy read. There's a book called Gladys Aylward, The Little Woman. That's about a missionary to China. Um, that's a pretty easy read. So, you know, you got to sort of pick your books based on your temperament and whatever, but this one is phenomenal. So then let's actually move into some of her, I don't know, I, I just mentioned some of her struggles when she got to India, I wrote down some of them. Um, she struggled with what she called fashionable Christianity. India had been at some level evangelized to the point where there were a lot of nominal Christians, even in, in the Indian side of things. So that was very hard for her. The caste system was a tremendous burden for her because there. Were, this is completely unrelatable to us in the West, but people would not let her talk to the higher caste women, and for a high caste person to convert to Christianity was basically going to be a death sentence. And that didn't stop her from witnessing, but the caste system was just was horrible. She struggled with differences with people. She seems like she was impatient at times. She was a go-getter, you know, and she had a hard time waiting. Um, the language was, she said, almost impossible for her to learn. It took her quite a while, it seems, to learn the language. She was sick at times. Um, I've got another scrawly note here. Oh, criticized and misunderstood. We already talked about that. But she didn't have an easy time. That reminds me of one of the biggest veins I saw running through the book, which was discipleship. Mm. Uh, and there's so much you could draw out of the book. And again, this is another reason I do like the way this book was done, was they inserted a lot of her poetry. I don't see how you could have her biography of her without her poetry, uh, because it was like her diary, in a sense, of her life. And again, you see her wonderful mind and heart, but it brings out, I mean, it's almost like getting 
her take on different subjects and seems mm-hmm. like, yeah, one of the biggest ones was really following the Lord faithfully. So through all those hardships, to her, it, that was a given. Yeah. She wasn't surprised. She went in expecting that. And it wasn't going to slow her down in the sense that she was going to depend on the Lord and get through it. I thought the test she came up with for workers was pretty good. I mean, there were four questions. Well, there were others, but these were kind of the spiritual ones. Do you desire to live a crucified life? Does the thought of hardness draw you or repel you? Are you willing to do whatever helps most? And this one is a mouthful. Can you name any experience you have passed through that brought you into a new discovery of your crucified, risen, and enthroned Lord? It's like, man, that would weed out a lot of people, but that's the type of person she was looking for. Yeah, it definitely points out her, I guess, directness or her, in her mind, things had to be a certain way, but she took it as her hearing from the Lord. This is what he would want. And so she presents this to people and it's it's hard for a lot of people when you see people coming over to India just to try to be a part of this and they leave like pretty quickly because they haven't had these things that these yeah. questions that she asked, they can't, they might answer them one way, but then they, they're there for not very long and they realize, oh, this is a lot more than what I thought it would be. It's, this really is a death to self. And like, you constantly have to surrender your rights to the good of the community. And you, it's not very long before your will exerts itself and is like, you know, I want this or I want privacy or I want, you know, this and this and that thing. And it just doesn't last because eventually it'll cause division. And that's what she sees, I think, when she's asking these questions is, is this person going to contribute to the good of the body as a whole? And if it doesn't, then they're not suited here because eventually they could cause the breakup of the fellowship. Yeah, that's totally true. And whether or not she understood what she was called to in the beginning, she probably didn't, but I guess we probably could just sort of transition to what she found out was her principal work was to rescue young girls from the Hindu temple sex industry, essentially. Um, Basically, at that time, I don't, I don't remember all the details, but it seems like poor women um, who couldn't care for their children or maybe even higher caste women who believed that there was some kind of honor in, in this line of work would dedicate their children or their daughters to the Hindu temples. And they were essentially used as sex slaves for the Hindu priests. And so when Amy found out about that line of work, she was determined that this thing is, I'm going to not bring this down, but I'm going to do whatever I can do to rescue girls from this. And if you've ever, and I certainly haven't, I know the Gallaghers could probably definitely relate to this, but when when you realize that God is calling you to directly confront entrenched demonic social strongholds, you know that your life is going to be one of suffering because the enemy is not going to give this stuff up without a fight. And so for her, for Amy, yeah, she wasn't calling people to join her in a popular 
evangelistic work where, you know, p- souls are being saved and we're just having a great time. And she knew that you're going to have to give up your entire life and it's going to be very hard. Yeah. And I'm going to read a little bit here. And this exactly points that out because when she saw this happening, she went through a lot of things to get the children away from that that environment. So it says the search for children in peril went on assiduously, but as quietly as possible. They found that there were five reasons for children being dedicated to temples. Sometimes it was because of a vow or obedience to a family custom. Sometimes it was in order to escape some social entanglement, such as an out-of-caste alliance. When a poor widow or a deserted wife could not find a suitable husband for her child, she married her to the god. In some cases, lack of money to perform the death ceremonies required by the caste tempted a mother to give up her child for her husband's sake. So this is, Mm -hmm. she's seeing this in her mind, and this is what so burdens her for these children. Like, this is what these children are be given up to. And it goes on to say, it was three years before a second Timbal child was found. Wow. So she really labored. I mean... Imagine how the discouragement that she had to have gone through that we may not even see in this book, but just the doubts and the questions and the fears, the enemy probably relentlessly like, you know, this isn't worth it. You're not going to find anything. You're not going to find another one. And she waits three years and then they find another one. So it just shows you the perseverance that she had to go through, the endurance of all these, you know, demonic thoughts and all these things that are coming through and people. And yeah, that's amazing to me. Yeah, and, and alongside all that determination was was love. Obviously, she's doing this out of love. But yeah. that, I mean, was anybody else reminded of Pure Life and the culture by reading this book? Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it, but to me, the balance that was there was so helpful. I feel like I'm defending Amy, but like, yes, she was super intense about sacrifice for the cause, but you didn't get the sense that this was like only militant. It was she right. was very loving, and and in fact, that was one of the core things she insisted on was nothing to disturb the unity and love. Yeah. So it was a family, and she, you saw even with the people that she was in a sense vetting, she'd be writing them letters all the time, and it was very affectionate. Like she assumed the best about people. I think that was the one flaw that one of the guys remembered in her life was you know. She kind of was a, didn't judge character too well because she assumed people were better than they were. Mm. It's like, wow, what a, if that's your only flaw, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. And so, yeah, very demanding, but no one who lived with her could doubt that she loved them. And I, again, I just feel like living at Pure Life, that's, that's what I feel like. We're, you know, we're called to a high standard, but, but man, the, there's such a benefit to living in community like that. And so in a way, it's almost like, uh, I don't know if this is why the book is given to us as, inter- as interns here, but it's almost like this fellowship, I don't want to say was a forerunner of Pure Life, but built on a similar model, really. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just, in a sense, similar to the early church, too. It's just following Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you're right. That's the other reason why she was so cautious with who she brought in was because she knew that, like like you said, Reagan, you're going to have to die to yourself. I mean, it was pretty, I think that she spoke in very strong terms about the fact that no division would be tolerated. I mean, no division would be tolerated. So no backbiting, no gossiping, 
uh, one of the words was never about, always to. So you never talk about someone. You always talk to them. But again, the, like you said, Brooks, earlier, the testimony of that kind of self-sacrifice was just that there was incredible love. Like her mother came and, and observed all this and said, I've never seen a place where there's never a harsh word spoken. There's never any kind of dissension. It's just love and being built up and encouragement all the time. Again, not without discipline, but in terms of interpersonal relationships, there was no strife between anybody, at least in the early days. Yeah, and her her mom said, an atmosphere of love and obedience pervades the compound. Miss Carmichael wrote to a friend at home, in this large family of over 30, ranging in age from 34 years to a babe of nine months, I have not seen an angry look or heard an impatient word. It's a pretty strong statement. I mean, you know, you yeah. go somewhere and be there for very long and you see something, you know, yeah. something of the flush, like someone being angry towards someone else or criticize them. But like to say that, that's that's really powerful to show you like, how much Amy believed that you know they had to sacrifice what they wanted for the good of the whole, and then in that everyone got what they needed, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's like you look at this as a whole, and it's very attractive. Now, the I think the book even mentions like it's not so attractive to live it every day, changing diapers and doing menial things that no one's ever going to thank you for. But when you again zoom out. It is very compelling to see because it works. It's just following the words of Jesus. Yeah. And her life is really an argument for for following and obeying Jesus. It's like, yeah, this what other life would I choose? It looks harder when you start into reading it, but then you realize it's harder to live an apathetic, half-hearted life where you're always torn inside and you never really are giving yourself away like you know, just even the vows she made, I'll read, this is was the thing that she made up for the women who chose to be single and live there, which was her commitment. I guess it was almost like, it wasn't, they weren't nuns, but it was similar to that. And so they had kind of a statement. It said, my vow, whatever thou sayest unto me, by thy grace, I will do it. My constraint, the love of Christ, my Lord. My confidence that thou art able to keep that which I have committed unto thee. Maybe that was drawing on her childhood. My joy, to do thy will, O God, my discipline, that which I would not choose, but which thy love appoints, my prayer, conform my will to thine. And then I love this last one, my motto, love to live, live to love. But she only got to that at the end. It's like this life of sacrifice became the most fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's what, what is amazing, right, is that it's it's obvious as you read further on in the book that there were difficulties at times, especially as they got larger, because more and more people were interested in coming to be part of the fellowship. And so as it drew, as it grew in attractiveness in a sense, and the word got out about what they were doing, it was attracting more people. And not all of those people were of the same kind of spirit, you know, that she was. And so there was more there were more uh, difficulties with with people, people problems. But in the early days, when it was small, it was just the things they suffered were for other people. 
You know what I mean? They suffered because they were confronting the enemy's domain. But as a family, there was unity and there was love and there was camaraderie. And so it just shows you, right, like we're all going to suffer, but how are we going to suffer and for what? You know, are we going to suffer because we're selfish and self-centered and then there's division and strife and backbiting? Or are we going to suffer for the sake of other people and other people are being helped and saved and sanctified? You know, which kind of suffering do we want? Do we want the kind of suffering that is just because we're so full of self and pride or do we want the kind of suffering that comes because we're actually being used for the kingdom. Well, I think there's a scripture that Paul talks about that very specific thing. He says something about if you suffer, what benefit it is to you if you suffer for um, unrighteousness' sake? For, yeah, for unrighteousness' yeah. sake, you know. And it's that same principle. She was suffering for the sake of righteousness, and there was a ton of reward for that. Yeah, um, it's one thing to suffer because of your sin, because you're going astray in disobedience from the Lord. But it's another thing entirely to suffer for the cause of Christ. And in that, souls are one, and there's love, and there's unity. And then another scripture that comes up to mind is when Paul talks about spiritual gifts. Like, even the things that we've given by God are supposed to be used for the sake of the body, so that the body is built up and unified. And so we see that here. Like, all the gifts and abilities even in the Donover Fellowship, were all supposed to be used for the good of the Donover Fellowship itself um, and not for personal gain, which some of these people who came into the fellowship, that's what they wanted. They wanted, they had these strong domineering personalities and they wanted a certain way. And Amy basically said, no, it's not going to be this way because this isn't best for the whole body. And then they had to leave. So you see like how much your self-life is given a death blow by just going there because mm-hmm. you can't exert a certain type of influence there. Mm-hmm. And she would even say, like, you know, that this isn't from the Lord when someone would say something and nobody would contest her because they knew that she heard from the Lord. Mm-hmm. But this these outsiders that would come in that had no idea, you know, they were in it for themselves, essentially. They wanted something, a gain for, by being there, and they just didn't receive it. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, when you read through, I think it's like you were saying, uh, Brooks, nobody could dispute that she wasn't living that life. You know, if she said that this isn't going to be about your advancement, this isn't going to be about your gifts or your abilities, or like she had already gone through that fire, and so she could say that with authority. I mean, you know, she was, when she first came to India, she had a very strong desire to evangelize, right? And so she learned the Indian language, Tamil, in order to be able to have the freedom to go and evangelize. And eventually she felt, when she found that young child and realized that there were girls being subjected to that kind of sex slavery, she she realized that that's what her life was going to be like. And that was a that was a severe test for her because she felt like, and I mean, she actually said it right here, could it be right to turn from so much that might be of profit, meaning evangelism, and become just nursemaids? So she, you know, she kind of felt like, 
wow, I could be out there winning the masses and now I'm just going to be a babysitter? And she said, or uh, Elizabeth Elliot summed up, I guess, her uh, Amy's thinking on this. The answer was yes. It is not the business of the servant to decide which work is great, which is small, which important or unimportant. He is not greater than his master. And then Amy said this, if by doing some work which the undiscerning consider not spiritual work, I can best help others, and I inwardly rebel, thinking it is the spiritual for which I crave, when in truth it is the interesting and exciting, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Yeah. You know, so for her, she had, and I see, I see in that the death of her own ambitions, you know, the death of her own, I would say, like how the, how our own flesh craves things that seem good, and the Lord says, this is not what I have for you. And her choice was, okay, then Jesus decides what I am, and if that means I'm a glorified babysitter, you know, then I will do that for him. Yeah, that's where I go back to, like, the reality of that faith that you see her living in, where it really was, not just in name only, but really, okay, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Like, all the time. It was, it's so amazing where that took her because, you know, self-denial, which is what I, you know, I guess we all struggle with, it became so beautiful. And so, to her, it became such a hunger and a desire I just had a whole list of quotes. I want just a couple that she would say is like she would say things like, "Duty is my pleasure. The cross is the attraction. To will what God wills brings peace." And it's like, man, I, I again, I saw that modeled in her. I mean, we know that it's in the Bible. It's what Jesus commanded. But to see someone really choosing that path and then experiencing, yes, there is peace and fulfillment in that. Um, I'm sorry, I can't help myself. I'm going to read one more little... Yeah, this yeah. is a part of her poetry. It actually woke up with this on my mind this morning, and I'm sure this was born out of a lot of her struggles. She said, Across the will of nature leads on the path of God, not where the flesh delighteth the feet of Jesus trod. And then this is the part that gets me, because you see how upside down this is from how we think. Oh, bliss to leave behind us the fetters of the slave the slavery of selfishness, to leave ourselves behind us, the grave clothes and the grave. And that's what you see she enjoyed in her later years was the freedom of a selfless life. And, you know, how can you argue with that? Yeah. Yeah. And that, what comes to mind when you're talking about that was a lack of hypocrisy. She hated that flesh that she still had that was constantly influencing her. But I think that's what really stood out about her is you look at her life and you're like, where is the hypocrisy? Because she's constantly pursuing holiness and pursuing the Lord in such a way that people couldn't accuse her of doing this or that thing because she she wasn't doing it. Like, And so there was a single eye for the Lord. There was a pure devotion to the Lord that drove her to not have any dark corners in her life. And by the end of that, you see the fruit. You see the, the end of her life, and you see what people say about her, and you come to understand, like, she really 
wasn't a hypocrite. Like, I think we can all be accused of that to some degree, you know, but she was relentless about like, I want the Lord. I want him and I want his plan and I want his character. And that played itself out um, in the end. And she was purely devoted to Jesus. In a way, it's hard for me to believe that this kind of life and this just shows how American I am, I guess, existed in the last hundred years. I mean, I know there's people everywhere that are living this way quietly, but it's like it almost seems unreal because of how pure she was. And we live in such an impure time. I, I guess that should be an encouragement you know, to us. That right at the very, very end of the book, one of the questions that uh, Elizabeth Elliot asks is, when we look at someone like this, you know, how do we respond to this? Would Do people tend to reject that person? Maybe not outwardly, but there's the temptation inside to deny that this is possible, to live at this level, or to try to explain it away and, and basically bring someone down to our level because we're too intimidated by the the purity of that example. And, you know, I, that, I have to admit, like, that definitely is there. But to me, reading the whole book, you walk away attracted to that and thinking, you know, I would think every true Christian, something in you says, that is what I want. Yeah, and I think that that really also helps sum up some of the value of biographies, Brooks, like you experienced it yourself as you read this, right? It It is a call. It's a call to a higher life. Like it speaks to that part of us that longs for a noble life. We long for our life to count. We long for our life to – there's something attractive about the self-sacrificial life because something in us knows there is real life at the end of that. You know, this is not – that's not a fool's errand. Like you don't get to a, uh, the end of a life like this and have all of these regrets, you know, because your life is worth something. The thing she set out to do to build with – um, gold and silver and precious stones, she did by the grace of God. Yeah. And that's not going to be burned up by fire. Right. I mean, how many people are going to have all these regrets because they built with wood, hay, and stubble, and the fire just comes in at, in a moment, and everything they built is gone. And so a book like this just says, don't do that. You know, build with gold, silver, and precious stones. And I think for, you know, our audience, um, people who are wanting to find their way out of sexual sin, like how, yeah, this might feel intimidating or it might feel like, man, I could never do that. What's the point of even trying? But that's not what we should get out of it. It's like we should take out of this, today I can be less selfish than I was yesterday. You know, I can be more hungry for God. Okay, if God could do such a dramatic thing in this life, he could do something powerful in mine. Like, it won't look exactly the same as her. I might not be called to be a missionary in India, but at least it's obvious that God has not destined my life to be a curse, you know, and just be mired in the swamps of sexual sin. Like, he is calling me to be a blessing in the earth, and he's got something prepared for me that is worth pursuing. So, yeah, we would just commend... Uh, reading biographies to anybody who's listening to this podcast, find your own. Um, read Amy Carmichael or uh, read some of the ones that we've mentioned or go online and pick out 
you know, I'm sure there's a list online, 100 best Christian biographies, um, and you'll be able to find some that would work for you. So anyway, thank you guys. This was like really awesome. Yeah, it was a huge blessing. Thanks very much. All right, that's it for this episode. Next week, we're jumping back into our series, A Firm Foundation, and we are going to be studying Psalm 51. God bless. We'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.